Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries features Rav Mike Foyer. For more information on how to download more podcasts, visit elmod.pardes.org. Okay, as always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, that's P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il for helping make this class happen. Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, we left off kind of at the uh, smoking crater of the Sabbatean explosion. If you guys recall, this sort of like tremendous enthusiasm around the false messiah of Shabtai Tzvi. And what I want to do today is sort of just touch base to remember where we were in class last week to address this question um, of <laughs> how come it was such an explosion? I mean, meaning today if somebody showed up and started to tell you that the way to worship God was to eat pork and, I don't know, do whatever it was they were doing, okay, you may or may not have a liberal sort of attitude toward their own personal practice, but that wouldn't cause you to believe they were the Messiah, right? Whereas, a, apparently, there was a strong appeal at the time. We're going to return to that. So I want to look at that today. Uh, I want to also relate it to a larger theme of this class in, in early modernity, which is this erosion of rabbinic authority, right, which is very important because rabbinic authority, of course, is the power structure which is holding on to the past as the standard of measure for authority, right? Tradition, right? And, and, we, and with the full clash of modernity that's going to come in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, we're going to have to understand why do the rabbis who have weathered 1,000, 1,500 years of conflict with various religions and cultures, etc. Why did they fail so miserably when it came to modernity? Um, and, and that's not going to happen all at once, but that's going to be a part of our introduction. And then um, we're going to look at the continuation, because lest you think that um, Shabtai Tzvi's forced conversion to Islam, well, somewhat forced, I mean, you know, he could have gone to die. Um, Whether well, you think that was the end of his story, on the contrary, we're going to see that the Sabbatean movement in many ways, gains momentum after his death. So I want to look a little bit about both just the historical facts around that and the question of why, what was the appeal. And last but certainly not least, if we get to it, I want to somewhat shift gears, although hopefully I'll be able to present it to you as a related topic, um, and introduce the person and personality of Baruch Spinoza um, and a sort of whole other path in uh, the erosion of traditional Jewish culture. So that's the plan for today. It's sort of a small agenda, and I think we'll be able to do it. Um, so just to get us back to where we were, I have a couple of quotes here from a book called Tzitz Novel Tzvi, right? Um, which is a book by uh, Rabbi Yaakov Tzaspurtas. You guys like names, so I'll, I'll give that to you. Right, Ra Rabbi Yaakov Tzaspurtas, who was a deep opponent. His, his uh, book is called Tzitz Novel Tzvi, uh, which I would pronounce, I would uh, Translate as a tzvi, meaning Shabtai tzvi, the sort of um, withered flower. A tzitz novel is a, a flower that sort of falls from the, uh, from the vine, so to speak. Um, he, was a, he was a committed anti-Sabbatean, even at the height of the enthusiasm. That's very important, because as we're going to speak about, there were many people who at the height of the enthusiasm stood to the side. Many of the rabbinic authorities stood to the side, because as we spoke about this challenge of the Re the, the redemption and the um, repentance movement 
Remember, just keep in your mind this image that somebody bursts into the Spanish Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam and says, the Messiah has arrived. Everyone starts to chuckle, and the rabbis go to put, kick him out. He says, now everyone must do repentance and start fasting and praying, and everybody gets really religious. What are the rabbis supposed to do? Say, stop that? Right? And, and so he was, even at the time, not just a neutral observer. He was a deep opponent. He was one of the few who really, in his lifetime, opposed not only Shabtai Tzvi, but also the sort of enthusiasts who picked up his way. So he describes the scene in Amsterdam as follows. He says, all the city of Amsterdam pulsated and was under the fear of the Lord. Notice the characterization. <coughs> under the fear of the Lord. Right? They increased the joy with drums and dances in the marketplace, right? and dancing with joy. And all the tourist goals were taken out of the arks with their beautiful jewels without paying attention to the danger of the envy and hate of the nations, which is a big thing. Um, as the commercial status of Jews increased in the 17th century, and we'll see it as a theme throughout later European history, um, the fear of what we call sumptuary laws, right? I mean, you put, it, you put in, in effect laws about conspicuous consumption. They had two reasons. One, of course, even today, in certain segments of the religious world, there are sumptuary laws to prevent things like what happened with our bat mitzvah, which is keeping up with the Joneses. I mean, a certain social standard is fine if you can keep it, but what happens if you can't is that people actually go, God forbid, into debt trying to just keep up with the social standard of consumption. Here was another side. The other reason for the sumptuary laws was what? The non-Jews didn't like to see the Jews so well off. Right? And so therefore, it was about part of keeping a low profile. But he says, despite that fear, right, they were dancing with all the sort of jewels and silver that they adorned the Torah scrolls with. And he says, on the contrary, they were making public declarations and speeches to the nations. He says, I with my very eyes did see they unleashed their tongues against the non-believers and called them heretics. Remember, we spoke about this, this sort of um, communal division, us and them. The enthusiasts were very quick to turn on anyone who didn't join them in the sense of imminent redemption. And perhaps most importantly, um, he says, I couldn't speak for my followers were few and even they did not speak aloud, but in secret, here's the key quote, and the masses were stronger than their leaders and there was no one to talk back to them. Right? That, that he gives a sense, which may or may not be borne out by the historical record, that this was a mass movement and not a movement of the rabbis. Now, I don't get into the fact that he was also a defender of rabbinic authority, and so therefore it was in his interest post facto. Remember, this book was presented, he, he put it out in the wake of the implosion, even though he himself witnessed these things firsthand. Um, he was interested in shoring up rabbinic authority, but what is certainly true is that the Sabbatean enthusiasm will be one of another deep blows to rabbinic authority. So just keep that on the board, because we're going to come to that in a, in a more consistent sense. But, but really, where we left off is this question of what, I mean, just listen to this, right? Where the great sound was arousing from the holy temple, resounding, saying, this is the end of wonders, and king of David, David, king of Israel, lives forever. Like, well, how does this happen? What were the factors that allowed for such an explosion. I mean, by the way, if it weren't for a political split within the Vod, in, within the, um, what's the word, uh, the temple board, so to speak, the synagogue board of the community of Amsterdam, they would have sown, sold all of the publicly owned buildings in order to raise money to mass transport the community to the land of Israel. That's documented. We have the records. And it was only because a, a minority group withdrew and refused to participate that such a thing didn't happen. Imagine if they'd woke up in the morning and not only had the Messiah converted to Islam, but they just sold all their property. 
right? But that gives you a sense of how tremendous the enthusiasm was here. And I keep using that word, because by the way, it is a technical term, enthusiasm, an enthusiast, um, because it's a, there's a certain intoxication and excitement here that we have to understand, and it doesn't just go away. So a few factors. Um, classically, if people are familiar, Professor Gershom Shalom was the first person, one of his major works is actually a, a history and analysis of the Sabbatean movement. If you guys haven't read Gershom Shalom, I highly recommend it. It's actually, for a scholar, quite readable. He's important. He was, of course, the first person to systematically research Jewish mysticism. Up until that point, just as a side note in history, why hadn't anybody ever researched it before? I mean, the 19th century is full of Jewish historians. It's the birth of Jewish historians. Why had no one taken a serious, critical, historical look at Jewish mysticism? Their whole worldview was, on one hand, apologetic. They wanted to show the rationalist, sort of very, very sort of normal European view of history. Second of all, they dismissed mysticism as an irrelevancy at best, and is non-Jewish at worst. Sholem, who was not a mystic, he's not a mystic. You know, Martin Buber was a contemporary and a friend. You know what Buber said about Sholem? Sholem was like a grocer of mysticism. He knew where everything, every can on the shelf went. He'd never opened to one of them. <laughs> right? But, but, but Sholem understood that if you want to have a real grasp of Jewish history, you have to understand the mystic movements. And so therefore, one of his major works was on Shabtai Tzvi, and his thesis was that it was Lurianic Kabbalah that paved the way for the Sabbatean explosion. Now, uh, Moshe Idel, Professor Moshe Idel, who was a student, has deconstructed this, I think, fairly effectively, but nevertheless, th the, there's a core point that needs to be understood here, because it's playing a role even today. If you want to understand why some kid with pass down to his pupic wearing raggy, raggy clothes and a kippah too big for his head, thinks he's going to bring the Messiah by throwing rocks on the Chov Shishim, then you, then you need to appreciate it's not just the extremism. Extremism happens in all kinds of places. But where do you get the idea that I, as an individual, through my actions, could bring about redemption? Right? And, and the origins of such a thing in the modern period in Judaism are in Lurianic Kabbalah. I mean, they have much deeper origins. I think they have an origin in human psychology, that if you've come to a belief that your actions no longer matter, you, will, you might as well pack up shop. Right? The existentialists said the only real philosophical question is whether to kill oneself or not, which is why many of their students, of course, answered that. Um, the, you know, so therefore, there is a basic psychological need, and don't discount that need after, at this point, 1,600 years of exile to hold fast to some belief that my actions not only matter in some abstract theological sense, but matter in a philosophical day to, sorry, historical day-to-day -day sense. But, but where would you get a real supercharge out of that? Well, that we saw this doctrine of the Arizal about tikkun, that human actions done with right consciousness, I shouldn't just say human, the actions of a religious Jew who does mitzvot with a right consciousness is able to make these tikkunim, these repairs that actually allow God's presence to return to earth. Right? The Ari, without reviewing what we learned or even going deeper into it, is the one who really returned human agency to a theologically significant, or not just theologically, cosmically significant realm. You understand the difference? Your actions could be theologically significant, as, say, Professor Leibowitz would tell you, right? Because God commanded you to do so. You understand? That was if people are familiar with the professor's perspective. Theological significance in Leibowitz's thought is all centers on commandedness. 
right? Your actions matter because God commanded you, and that's not that's a very fundamentally Jewish stance and not one to be quickly dismissed. But but it was not because of their historical significance. It was not because of a human drama unfolding, which is why ultimately he left his Zionist roots behind, because he was frightened by the mix between human historical development and divine commandedness. So that's one pole. The other pole, though, is that your actions aren't just theologically significant, they're cosmically significant. That without you, God can't bring the world to fruition. Which means through you, God just might. That is an extremely exciting thought. Right? And it might actually drive you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Right? Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna get to it. So one is what I would call the sort of um, intellectual, spiritual, theological framework. Shalom's, according to Professor Idell, in a nutshell, Shalom's failure was to appreciate the the fact that Lurianic Kabbalah had not spread as wide and, uh, to the masses as that as he believed it had at the time. Also because Shalom, like everyone, is he sees the world through the lens of his own understanding. He saw these texts as ultimately significant. It's not so clear that the average um, conversa merchant or citizen of Istanbul did as well. But there's, there's an important framework they provide. I don't know your name. Leslie. Well, Leslie, what you're pointing out is we'll, we'll go there next, which is um, that, as we all know, that it's in the darkest of places that salvation becomes most appealing. So the conversas themselves we've had since the expulsion from Spain but what's now, we're looking at 170 or so years of persecution. That's not to be ignored, although I want to treat them on their own. What's the immediate historical event that, that I already, at least implicitly, right, the Khmelnytsky massacres, the, uh, the Ashkenazim. Now remember, we spoke last week about the fact that there's a pretty deep historiograph- historiographical debate about how devastating those disasters actually were. And as much as I'm always on the side of the Jews versus the Ukrainians, sorry, um, I, I think that Jewish historiography here is a little bit tilted, right? That it, it, it doesn't bear out that all of Eastern European Jewry was wiped out in this massive hundreds of thousands of people slaughtered, since we saw that within the space of not like one generation, but within the space of a few years, many of the towns that were destroyed were actually rebuilt. Nonetheless, I pointed out to you that the way in which the story is told, Yivain Mitzulah, right, Nathan Hanover's book that we spoke about last week, presents this, and as did the son of the Shloh, as, as the third in a series of destructions, those being the first temple, the second temple, and 1648. In which case, from a sociological view, or the other way to say it, from an internal narrative view, the perspective was a time of total destruction, and therefore, depression, you know, psychosociology is a little bit of a chancy feel, but we call it a national depression, and therefore a need for redemption to be at hand. By the way, as long as we're making overt references to modern politics, it's the best way, by the way, always to plug the webinar, um, the settlement movement gains its momentum when? Wrong. The settlement does not gain its momentum in 1967, though the core 
members of it are the ones who are, who are entranced with the moment of 1967. It really gains its momentum after what? After 1973. After the gut punch to the Israeli psyche and the deflation which follows what, what one could argue, by the way, the end of secular Zionism and the need to provide some sort of spirit that can fill that vacuum. You see the parallel? Because they were Ashkenazim. They were Ashkenazim, yeah. No, they were aware of it, as we spoke about once when we talked about the various sort of historiographers that emerged in the 16th century. But this isn't just like the Ashkenormative sort of thing that people are fighting against today. Remember, this is not the information age. Right? They, they, it, even though, of course, they all knew that the expulsion from Spain had happened, the way in which something becomes part of the fabric of your lived story is through familial and communal inheritance. Remember the Ashkenazim? How do they know what happened during the Crusades? Because they're still reading lists of the dead in shul on the days in which they were massacred. You may think that's strange, but how many of you said Av HaRachamim in shul this Shabbos? That is the remnant of a very old Ashkenazi practice of reading off lists of martyrs who were killed during the First Crusade. That was a kilot ha-kodesh, shemasuret nafsham, these holy communities that gave their lives. It's a remnant of it because if I started reading off to you about the names of people who lived in in Verms in the 11th century, you wouldn't recognize any of them. But appreciate that that it's they, they this was fit into, and that's what I meant last week when I said this fits into that structure of Ashkenazi culture, which is the martyrology, which is why in many ways Yevim Mitsula, Nathan Hanover's book, is the culmination of that whole literary art. And by the way, I pointed out to you, it ends there because the one thing that people apparently did not do during the Chanelnitsky massacres was die instead of being converted. Why? Well, first of all, they chose to run away. Second of all, it didn't seem that this was a religious conflict. It was a socio-political one. Nobody was looking to convert the Jews. Maybe, maybe you could have saved yourself by professing. Maybe not. Don't forget, these were Eastern Orthodox Christians killing Catholics. Do you think that they cared whether the Jews converted at that point? No, they hated the Jews. Of course they hated them because they were Jews because that was just like normal. But why did they really hate the Jews? Because they were the middlemen for the Polish landlords. Right. So, so uh, we lose the, no, there it is. So, okay. So, so this was a, a deep impact. And, and it should always be appreciated, and, and particularly in our day, we should be wary. And I don't dismiss, and don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not equating the settlement movement with Chabtai Tzvi. You can make your own conclusion. My only point was that there is always a need for a revival of spirit. And, and one of the powerful roles that messianism plays in the history of the Jewish people is the maintenance of hope. Remember, hope, the definition of hope on some level is that the belief that what is does not define what will be. Because if you really believe that what is defines what will be, as soon as things get bad, there's no hope. Meaning if things are fine, so fine. But that's not when you need hope. And Marcuse said hope was given into the world for those who don't have it. Right? Um, that's a paraphrase, but it's a fair one. The, um, the, so that's a powerful tool of maintaining faith and forward momentum. The problem is the harder it is to believe that there's something outside of what is, 
the more powerful your belief in redemption has to be. And furthermore, the easier it is for redemption, uh, put it to you this way, if you're already going to believe that God is going to come redeem you, and you're in the midst of this national depression, so to speak, out of which there seems to be no exit, and, and I don't know if anyone here is a, a therapist or anyone has struggled with depression, but from my experience, both as a counselor and personally, the definition of depression is the loss of any belief in what exists outside of your emotional state. It's a loss of hope. And that's why it's so dangerous. Because the person outside can be telling you, it's really not so bad, it's going to get better. But those are just words, because internally you've lost any belief in that anything exists outside of. So in the same way, at a certain point, exile becomes depression. Right? On one hand, that's terrible. On the other hand, you know what it means? I can tell you that they're going to come and save you through some normal means. Or I can come and tell you that, that you know, metal ships will fall from the sky and they will pick you up and transport you to the land of Israel you know, with, with you know, rockets, which you've never heard of. It, or I can tell you that the way to get there is actually by doing all the things that the Torah forbids. You understand? Once something is outside of your belief and your ability to accept it, what sounds absurd is just a matter of gradient. And on some level, the more absurd it is, the more appealing. Because why not? Right? And, and so there, there's, there's a power that needs to be reckoned with there. Um, so last but certainly not least, just to put a finger back on, in addition to sort of the, the, the groundwork that Lurianic Kabbalah lays um, and the power of the need for hope. Oh, I didn't finish that thought. Is that... The danger is that beyond hope lies fervor. Now, this is one, another one of Gershom's theories, which is very important to understand, that messianic hope becomes messianism that when things really get bad. Right? This is, by the way, Mashiach now. Peace now. Everybody wants Messiah. Everyone wants peace. Why the now part? I'll tell you why the now part. If you speak to either a committed Chabadnik or a committed member of Shalom Achshav, They'll tell you why, because if not now, then it'll be too, no, no, not now. If not now, when, careful, that's the rabbinic sense. If not now, then it'll be too late. And you see how that's actually a loss of hope and a loss of faith? It's funny. But, but, the, but the sort of hard ideological edge, you get this, by the way, also in, on the far right, don't get me wrong, and the settlement movement is filled with people like this, right? But always note that when, when it becomes Mashiach now, or, or land of Israel now, or peace now, the implication is, is that, or it will be too late, that is a loss of faith. Because it means that I have determined how things are going to work out. Notice. You've lost hope, too, because you think what is is going to dictate what will be. You just see a way out. But when it doesn't go your way, what happens to people like that? It doesn't end well. So in, in the same way, the, the, the fervor of messianism it comes together with the darkness of exile, which is like I can no longer imagine except this way, some crack that through which a ray of light comes. It's the only way I could possibly imagine it happening. It has to be right now. And the results are generally explosive, historically speaking. Although things change, things shift, as we're going to see. Okay, last but certainly not least is, is the whole Converso experience, which is where I want to pick up um, the, the thread of history momentarily, which is like I quoted to you last week, this letter from Nathan of Gaza, remembering that Nathan of Gaza is the prophet to Shabbat Tzvi's Messiah. He actually calls himself Elijah. And furthermore, that Nathan of Gaza lives as a Jew. He continues after Shabbat Tzvi converts and basically fades from the story, Nathan of Gaza is still sending his epistles out 
to various communities telling them that not only can he explain why the Messiah has converted to Islam, but it actually makes perfect sense. Because as he says, the prime secret to which we are obligated by the Torah is that all of us must be anusim, conversos, before we leave the Galut. That is, as it is written in the Torah, you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Right? You shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and then what? And then God will come and redeem you. That's the book in, in Devarim. It's a, so what's he telling you? That, that think of redemption as the way they used to think of the Big Bang Theory. You know, used to think the Big Bang Theory was going to turn into the Gnab, right? That, that, the moment, that the energy of the Big Bang was going to reach a certain point where it dispersed, and then what was going to happen? Apparently, nobody's saying this anymore, which is really disappointing to me, because I like the image. That, 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 that the energy of, of the explosion would disperse, and then gravity and the other sort of other natural forces would kick in, and everything would come back together. That's the image that he's working on of redemption. And by the way, who else worked on this image of redemption that once the Jews actually scattered to the four corners of the earth, they would be gathered back in? Not just the Christians. Who else who we've spoken about? Menashe ben Israel. Now, Menashe ben Israel, who, who fights to get the Jews back into England in order to fill that last katzeharet, that last little corner of the earth where the Jews actually used to be scattered, but we were kicked out. The irony, right? Um, I'm pointing that out to you, not just because it's fun, but because you have to appreciate how close it is. ben Israel remains a mainstream religious voice. He's not so well-known amongst Jews, but, but, but his messianic enthusiasm stays on track for one reason and one reason only. He never breaks the law. Neither does Shabtai Tzvi in a systematic fashion. His Masim Zarim, these strange acts that we spoke about, it's hard to know how widespread they were, or even, according to some historians, whether he did them at all. Why? Because Shabtai Svi, for the next hundred years, will become the boogeyman of rabbinic Judaism. They will see him under every bed, in every closet, behind every shady rabbi, they will be searching, and in fact, it will be a downright hundred-year witch hunt, as we'll see today, into which a, quite a few personalities get sucked and never to return. Yeah, Mark. Did you say that the Hasidism came maybe not even started, but that was second generation, where they talked a lot about Torah We will talk about the relationship between Hasidut and Sabbatinism in a few weeks. But yes, there's, there's a very important link to be made there. Well, but, okay, so it's important to know, right? Shabbat Shalom dies in 1676, and the story not only doesn't end, it keeps going for many of the reasons that we've spoken about, because he was channeling a need which had nothing to do with his, personal, his personality. Nathan of Gaza was able to lay the, the groundwork for understanding first his conversion, then ultimately his death, one second. And then, as we'll see, people picked up the Sabbatean mantle okay. almost immediately. Not only that, sometimes it's easier. There's a, there's a, there's a long-standing history yeah. of messianic movements which are liberated by the death of their Messiah. This may sound familiar. Um, <laughs> Jews, Jews are good at this. <laughs> Gods of wood and stone, yeah. Listen, when you look in Devarim, the whole section of Devarim from like chapter, I think it's Laman onwards, it's very interesting. There's very strange, people are familiar with 
um, this sort of like pronouncement was called Parshat Hatshuva, right? God says, and you will, you will repent, and then God will gather you from there, right? Is that a command? Is, is it a prediction? Right? So the way he's reading it is saying, this is the way it's going to play out. You will be dispersed, and you will serve gods of wood and stone, and then at a certain point, God will take you. So he, it's a deterministic standpoint. Oh, until, says Nathan of Gaza, until we serve gods of wood and stone, then God can't take us back to the land. Oh, I get it. That means that the converso experience is actually not only not what you thought it was, which was the ultimate denigration. It's the breakdown, if you recall, of the entire model of Jewish identity built by the rabbis of permitted, forbidden, right? Pure, impure. Us, them. We've been speaking about it, some of us, for two years. This is the whole model of identity which was created in the Second Temple period that allowed not only for Jews to survive, but thrive in exile. It breaks down in the last hundred years of Spanish Jewish life because there's no longer an us and them. But notice, the, the, the conversos, the anusim, were not saying because of our experience as we are them, therefore everything is permitted. On the contrary, they were just ignorant. They didn't know what to do. And we spoke about what happened when they tried to adapt to rabbinic norms when they escaped. Shabtai Tzvi is the first one, in any sort of large-scale sense, to say, you've got to understand that your oppressed condition is indicative of a shift in the spiritual fabric. Notice, it's not just no longer us and them anymore. It's also no longer permitted and forbidden. We're at the last stage. Who doesn't want to believe they're at the last stage? Right? It helps resolve a lot of problems. If I told you that all the problems that you're facing in your personal life, in your vision of Am Yisrael, in our political life in Israel, that really, truth is, these are indicative that if you just hold out, you just hold out, it's going to be okay. Not only is it going to be okay, it's going to be better than you can ever imagine. That sounds exciting, right? And if I could really, with a deep enthusiasm, convince you that that is so, if I said to him, by the way, all you need to do is give me another $100,000, a lot of you would do it. I can prove it to you. <laughs> what was in the paper today? I missed it. Oh, Rabbi Berlin. I wish you call him a rabbi. Listen, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't want to go into, into the, 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 the terrible details of this individual, but he is a long-standing... Guys, do you know why it's a trope in, in Western literature that, that, that spiritual leaders are sexual abusers? Because they are. And, and why? Because there is a capacity for charismatic teaching which goes to the heart of vulnerability. You can't learn unless you're vulnerable. Because if you're going to learn, that means that you have a willingness to accept the fact that you don't know and that someone else does. The problem with that is that it creates a power dynamic between teacher and student which is easily abused Furthermore, if any of you have ever spent time on the other side of that equation, as a teacher, it can also open up sides of oneself which are, you're not aware of or even in fully control. That's what's known as charismatic teaching. It can be, if you've experienced it, quite a powerful, I don't have a good word for it, dynamic, thank you, that's a great word. Um, okay, I don't want to go into him. I'm not going to write him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, I can give you a list in Shabtai Tzvi. Okay. 
Right, but by the way, and I'll point out to you just in the same way, just as if Shabtai Tzvi had chosen to die instead of convert to Islam, we would be celebrating him as one of the great spiritual martyrs of Jewish history. So too, there are plenty of rabbis out there who give their congregation advice to do X and not Y. And when it works, they're seen to be spiritual healers. In the end of the day, as religious as you want to claim, most people, knowingly or not, live by the rule that success proves itself. Okay. Ad Khan, the Parsha of Rabbi Berlin. So, so we have the underpinnings of Lurianic Kabbalah, and that's not going to go away, because as Marsha pointed out, that will become even more widespread in Hasidut, because it's really Hasidut in the early 18th century that succeeds in creating a mass movement out of Kabbalah. We have, let's say, the socio-historical reality of national depression, which there's a lot of debates, as I said, uh, around how big the impact of the Helnitsky massacres in 1648 was. But as we pointed out last week in the first half hour, the disruption to the social fabric was big. So whether there was actually mass slaughter on the scale that you know, Rabbi Nathan Hanover claimed or not, nobody questions the fact that Jewish, Ashkenazi Jewish life was completely disrupted. And then third, and certainly not least, you have this network of enthusiasts, of conversos, who are able to understand not only their sort of national historic arc from forced conversion through dispersion throughout the world, but their personal pain. And remember, the conversos don't always find it easy to fit back into rabbinic norms. right? And what we're going to do now in pushing forward, we'll come back to the undermining of rabbinic authority later, because um, I want to get into the flow of history. What we're going to do now is follow the path of two brothers in order to understand a little bit about where does this Sabbatean enthusiasm go. And these two brothers are both named Cardozo. Not strangely, because, of course, they're brothers. Um, one, one is Fernando. He's born in 1603. And the other one is Miguel, born in 1626. Right? It's always the younger brother, like myself, that's the bigger problem. They're actually born in Portugal. So they are part of the, the as we call, the Portuguese Hebrew nation. But they're part of that nation that's still born in Portugal. Right? At this point in the 17th century, that means that they're looking at a hundred plus years of forced, or let's call it new Christian life, right? They are educated in medicine at the University of, of Salamanca, obviously in different classes because they're age difference, right? Um, but study medicine and natural science there at the University of Salamanca in Spain, from Portugal to Spain, uh, which was considered one of the great universities of its day. Uh, Fernando actually becomes in his time, even while he's in Spain, a celebrated intellectual recognized for medicine, for his grasp of natural sciences, he's writing treatises, etc. He will represent for us the intellectual rationalist path. And, and we're going we're gonna to touch on him briefly, but really I want to sort of return to that in the person of Spinoza. Um, but uh, he comes a, a celebrated intellectual. His brother apparently preferred singing ballads to studying. Um, it's like all kind of very funny stories that if you can unearth them, about like, you know, like the older brother is trying to get the younger brother to study while he's in school. The older brother is always successful. He says, look at me, you could be me. And the younger brother says, why would I want to be you? Right? That's going to that's gonna come back to us here. So anyway, either way, in 1648, the brothers actually flee Spain. Apparently, there's not a lot of um, the documentation of their earlier life, but apparently they had been in touch. At many of these universities were hotbeds of Judaizing. That's a word. Right? Meaning, I, I've said to you before, the two places the Jews found it easiest to maintain some sense of religious identity were universities, and ironically enough, where else? 
in the monasteries and convents. The Jews in the, in the 15th and 16th centuries flocked, in the 16th century mostly, flocked into many of the monastic orders. Because, you know, if you, if you want to actually try to maintain Jewish practice, you want to pray, you want to keep Shabbat, then if you live alone in a cell and you pray by mumbling, and most of what you eat is bread and water, it is actually, practically speaking, and, and you live removed from the world. And last but certainly not least, is the Inquisition really going to look for you there? So much so, by the way, that many of these institutions create what they, what they renew the 15th century Limpiada de Sangre laws, the blood purity laws. They insisted that you had to be able to prove four generations of Christian heritage before they would accept you into an order. That, that's a, just a, a side note. For our purposes, they're at university. Apparently, they got mixed up with a bad crowd, depending on your perspective, um, awoke to their Jewish identity, and in 6048, they flee Spain for Venice. Again, still that track, even though we're almost 100 years after Doña Gracia, there's that track that if you, if you want to get out from under the thumb of the Inquisition, usually it's from Iberia to the Italian peninsula, because it's really just the easiest place to go, where there are well-established former Converso, now Jewish, Portuguese, Spanish communities. So they go to Venice. There they openly embrace their Judaism. Miguel becomes Abraham. Fernando becomes Isaac. So now we have the older brother is Isaac Cardozo, whose name might be familiar to some of you, um, and, the, and the younger brother is Avram Cardozo. So Isaac Cardozo continues his um, intellectual activity. He actually becomes a leading rationalist defender of Judaism. So very interesting is that, remember, in the 17th century, at this point, so we're in the mid to late, late 17th century, rationalism has become the standard of measure, and we're no longer into the empiricist camp might be worth it to make a distinction between those two. I think in my notes I gave a good, clean distinction. If you recall, that empiricists um, based knowledge on what? What? Yes, perception. Perception. So sensory perception is the absolute standard of measure for knowledge, which is why their methodology was inductive. Right? You don't start with some theory that you attempt to prove. You start with a series of observations and try to induce some sense of knowledge from it. There are lots of challenges to that, right? Not the least of which, of course, is that the senses are relatively easily deceived. But that was the whole empiricist camp, and it had a great power, and if you recall, in uncoupling knowledge from tradition. Just always remember that moment right before they excommunicated him of Galileo saying to the church fathers, don't tell me what you believe. Look through the telescope and tell me what you see. And then we'll talk about what you believe. Which was very upsetting. But that's one of the hallmarks of this era of modernity. Uncoupling knowledge from tradition. Right? The rationalists are a different breed. Because rationalists actually believe in innate ideas. That, that, another way to put that, by the way, is that you know certain truth as part of your rational nature. Truth is part of what we are. Right? And, and, and that's why you have to clear the obscurities of superstition and get back to innate human nature. In this, you see the real, if you're familiar with enlightenment thought, the real enlightenment thought begins to come with this belief in natural law, right? that, that there is actually an orderly universe that, you, that, that may or may not be related to God. We'll get to that when we get to Spinoza. But it means you don't have to make a break with religion per se. You just have to make a break with all of its mistakes through history. There's a purification that's being looked for. 
So therefore, it, the, the tools of a rationalist as you know, this belief in innate ideas and the use of human reason when properly employed, right? Um, and that sort of uh, capacity of, of human intuition that allows you, I'm looking for, I thought I wrote down a really good, yeah. Belief in innate ideas, reason and deduction. Fine, that's what I just said. Um, so Isaac Cardoza becomes a major, in his day, probably the biggest rationalist defender of Judaism. He publishes something called the Philosophia Libera, in 1673, which had the goal, in his words, of investigating nature and its founder, meaning God, that's capital F, founder, so that from the world and its multitude of things, as if by a ladder, with enlightened and instructed mind, we may be lifted to God, its maker. You know who would have loved that in Jewish history? The Rambam. He's basically quoting the Rambam. The Rambam says that basically you look around at the world, and if you think about it hard enough, you will get to God, which is why the Rambam, on and that, from that perspective, is rightly called a rationalist. Right? There are other things you could call a Rambam, but from that perspective, certainly. And this book, in, published in 1673, um, rockets Isaac Cardozo to the heights of fame of, in his day. I don't know if you've heard of him, but um, he was a master of all the scientific philosophical tools of his day. And key is he was determined to use them to reconcile Judaism and rational philosophy. And in this sense, he was simply the latest fruit of a very long tradition, going back even before the Rambam. Um, in this sense that, that reason and revelation are not intrinsically opposed. Right? And we're going to see that he takes, on one hand, a very scientific approach. He's going to take all the philosophical tools to prove to you he's a, he's a religious apologist. On the other hand, it's very interesting that um, about six years later, um, he publishes in Spanish, um, La Excelencias y Calumnias de los Hebreos, The Excellencies and Calumnies of the Jews. And he goes through systematically the 10 great qualities of the Jewish people in sociology and history, as we would call them, and the 10 great lies or aspersions which have been cast upon us. Right? In this sense, you, you, you get a sense from him that he was not just uh, attempting to philosophically sort of reconcile the rationalist tradition in Judaism, he was also fighting a sociological battle. He understood that all your philosophical works aren't going to mean a hill of beans if people believe that Jews drink the blood of Christian children in their matzah, right? You understand? That, that, that if I could argue with a philosopher and prove that Judaism is a refined religion, that's all well and good. But if all of his neighbors believe that on Pesach night we sacrifice Christian children, then what have you really accomplished sociologically? So, so this, by the way, will just tip us off, and we're not going to go too far down it now, that, that those are the twin battles that lie ahead in the 18th century. Moses Mendelssohn, when we get to him, God willing, um, will exemplify the fight with those two things. On one hand, to reconcile, in many ways, an internal need, rational, rationality and religion, because he wanted to stay a Jew. He was a defender of Judaism in his own way. On the other hand, to try to prove to the outside world that, that the Jews, as a social historical phenomenon, were not blood-drinking devils. Right? He failed on both fronts. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, but, so that sounds great, and it may be quite familiar. Meanwhile, what's the younger brother doing? No, he's become a Sabbatean prophet. <laughs> yeah. See, unlike Isaac, the older brother, Abraham actually was an enthusiast with Shabbatite speech from the outset. I mean, Isaac, as soon as the whole Shabbatite speech thing started happening, you can imagine he looked at this and said, this is the most irrational behavior I've ever seen. Right? Abraham thought it was great. 
right? Not only did he think it was great, um, but what made him unique was his response to Shabtai Tzvi's conversion. Because to Isaac Cardozo, to the older brother, this was just proof that he was a failed messiah. And uh, basically, we ought to see this as a further proof for the rationalist rejection of Kabbalah and all other what he calls vain superstitions. But what does Avram Cardozo say? Well, he just, he just quotes Nathan of Gaza to him. He says um, that, in fact, the Messiah wants nothing other than to sanctify God's name. And thus he was violated, anus, meaning anusim, like he, he was a converso, in every way and from every quarter. And the reason for our iniquities and the prime secret to which we are obligated in the Torah is, this is a direct quote from Nathan of Gaza, all of us must be anusim before we leave the galut, as is written in the Torah, you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. It's a letter from the younger brother to the older brother in an attempt to convince him that Shabbat was indeed, even after his conversion, the Messiah. Now here it's worth it to just put a finger on something we didn't mention before, which is why is this notion of the suffering Messiah so appealing? Where does it come from? Yes, that's key to remember, is that, is that many people, many Jews in particular, associate this with Christianity, obviously, and the whole idea of the, the suffering servant, etc. But the Christians associate this with Isaiah. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah in particular, which if you hang out with missionaries, they always speak about the hidden chapter of Isaiah, as if it weren't there. And the, no, by the way, Jews fall for this stuff, because why? Because many Jews are ignorant of their tradition. And, and if you're a Jew who grows up in a Western secular culture familiar with Christian tropes, and then I show you as a missionary, not me, but, you know, Kibiachol, right? I show you the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and tell you, well, you've never seen this before, have you? That's because they hid it from you. It's like, What? Jesus in the Bible? Like, no, you've just never read Isaiah, <laughs> you know? But, but you understand how that can really make a deep impact. So you have Isaiah 53, which has a deep Jewish root. You have, of course, the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And then you have the converso experience. And, and, and so there is a very deep power which is being played upon here. Now, he doesn't stop there, though, he being Avram. Right? Because, and this is, this is the key, is when you want to understand where did the Sabbatean movement go after Shabtai Tzvi actually first converts and then dies, he, he says, well, actually, Shabtai Tzvi is playing out this mythic drama of redemption, echoing the Arizal, on a plane that the human mind cannot grasp. Remember, hope lies in the place where what is does not define what will be. So therefore, if I tell you your mind can't grasp it, if you're Isaac Cardozo, what will you do? You'll laugh at me because you're a rationalist and things the mind can't grasp are not real. But if you're Avraham Cardoza, you'll say, oh, thank God, I can breathe again. Because the world my mind was grasping was choking me. You have to appreciate that problem, which is being, the, the foundations of it are being laid as Judaism is struggling with modernity. So, because what does he say? He says, now we have to be clear that no creature is able to grasp with knowledge the affairs of the King Messiah because his knowledge is greater and higher than all who ever passed through the world who ever will. This is not anymore the Judaism that your grandfather taught you that you might be able to reconcile with the rational tradition. There's no one who's able to comprehend them in any way or manner because they're profoundly hidden acts of tikkun. Right? That what's going on now is a drama which is taking place on a stage that you can't even see. See, the problem with the rational mind is it's self-referential. If, well, I'll tell you what it means. If I am possessed by a psychotic belief that flesh-eating aliens 
who look like walking alligators are coming to take my brain. And the door flies open, and I pull my gun out and open fire on the innocent people walking through because I believe they're flesh-eating aliens who are coming to eat my brain. On some level, that's a completely rational response to reality. I'm just completely misreading what's happening. You understand? Rationality on that level is self-referential. If I create a system of, of, of if, if, if my, you know, so the, the key to the rationalist is you have a rational intuition. The human ability is to know. Well, that's why, of course, Descartes, foundational rationalist, doubts everything until he gets back to what? I think, therefore I am. Right? And once I think, therefore I am, then I can try to, through my rational capacity, build up a world which makes sense. The problem is, is that it's all completely self-referential. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a metaphor that might be helpful. The eye only sees a limited part of the electromagnetic spectrum, correct? So is the world in which we live, does it actually look like this? The answer is no, it looks like this to us. And furthermore, anybody here colorblind? Right? It looks like this to some of us. Right? This is, this is the limitation of rationality. But the belief of modernity is that rationality will replace religion. Religion offered certainty, doctrine, commandedness. That's fallen out of fashion. Why? Because sociologically it led to backwardness, oppression, denial of rights. So there's a sense within European culture that progress means uncoupling knowledge from tradition. Don't constrain my mind. Let me know the world freely, and then I'll actually know the world. It sounds appealing, and it might indeed be in advance. The problem is, is that you have to shrink the world to the capacity of the human mind in order to know it, if you want to be certain. If you don't want to be certain, you know what we can do? It's just too big to know, says Avram Cardozo. But that leads him to now go preaching that Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah. And as I warned you, he starts to gain momentum. And soon he declares himself to be a prophet. And then sure enough, it's never enough just to be a prophet. He declares himself to be the Messiah Ben Yosef, not Ben David, right? This sort of precursor Messiah that we spoke about um, beforehand. He's, he, he takes up residence in Tripoli, but he's forced out of Tripoli in 1673. Yeah. Listen, there are du dueling messiahs all over at this point. This is a theme, I'm, I, I'm joking aside, this is a theme you will see that, that if you look, and there's enough of literature out there that if you're interested you can find it, um, that there's a pattern in these sort of Sabbatean enthusiasts, that they become enthusiastic about Shabbat as the Messiah. They begin to prophesy in his name, and then slowly but surely they begin to be possessed by the spirit that they themselves are the Messiah. And one of the questions that we have to ask here is, what is going on? Like how, and by the way, in specific, the, 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 uh, Avram Cardozo introduces what is not necessarily a new phenomenon, but it becomes a, uh, uh, what's a um, symptomatic phenomenon, is what, he call, what's, what the literature calls Mag Magidic revelation. Remember the Magid? Who's the Magid in our story? Oh, this little angel who, who, who spoke to the Shulchan Aruch, who for the Shulchan Aruch was the personification of the Mishnah. Now, it's very important that for the Shulchan Aruch, for Rabbi Yosef Karo, this Magid that spoke to him was, let's say, halakhically normative. So therefore, the fact that he happened to be hearing voices 
was not so exceptional in the 16th century, probably. And the fact that the voices were telling him to do what the Mishnah told him to do was like comfortable. I can, I can deal with that. And the truth is, he was quite a scholar, so therefore, you know, it, it all works out. As soon as that voice starts to tell you to do things that are non-normative, that are what we call antinomian, they're law-breaking, some part of the people are going to turn around and say, what? You're crazy. See, he's hearing voices, right? <laughs> That's my indication that he's crazy, right? And, but you know what others are going to say? What did they say? That sounds really exciting to me. And indeed, what becomes his sort of hallmark is um, Megiddic revelation. He eventually begins to claim that not only he can summon up the Magid to tell him what he wants to know at will, he teaches others. And, and the key is, is that this is, a, this is a visible phenomenon. People are speaking in tongues. They are, they are revealing information which they have no right to know. Right? This is a human phenomenon that is known from many other places. I, I um, worked for a couple of years with a guy who was a Pentecostal Christian. I don't know if anybody ever hangs out with Pentecostal Christians, but, it, but it's one of the subsets of Protestant. It's an enthusiastic Christian uh, sect, um, which their worship aims at speaking in tongues. And I spoke to him about it. He was from Trinidad. I spoke to him about it. He said, yeah, he's like, he's done it. Spirit possessed me. And, and you can do a little research on the internet. It's like a well-documented phenomenon that nobody has a good explanation for. That, that, that not only do people start to speak in gibberish, but actually people, people will like speak in languages that they don't speak. Like it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. I just throw it out there for you just like in case your rational mind should balk at the sort of like boundaries of this story. There's really no, at this point, good explanation. And certainly in the 17th century, remember, nobody saw the act of prophesying as intrinsically problematic. The problem was the product, which was deeply antinomian, because he not only continued the sort of matira um, isurim, uh, this permission of the forbidden that Shabtai Tzvi had begun, but a critical piece for our story, and then we'll move on from Avram Kedosu, because he's taking more time than I thought he would. Um, a critical piece that he's going to add to our story is um, Shlilata Galut. It's really in Magin Avraham. That's the name of his book? Magin, yeah, Magin Avraham. Uh, in his, one of his works that is still existent, um, that we first begin to encounter this deep sense within the Sabbatean movement that redemption involves the negation of exile. Right? The negation of exile, Shlilata Galut. Now, there's a bit of debate. Does the, is the Shekhinah in exile, right? Do you have to redeem the presence of God from exile? We'll put it in Hebrew too for those of you who want to see the original. Shlilat Hagalut. Right? Or is it physically we ourselves have to leave exile? Don't forget, we, we said that the real redemptive bubbling began when the Shulchan Aruch, when Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, and the Rizal, and that whole Sfat team happened to gather in Sfat. And I pointed out to you that however you understand this incredible flowering of traditional Torah and mystic knowledge, one of its hallmarks is it was happening in the land of Israel. Right? This sense that, okay, or Menashe ben Israel says, we've reached the edges of exile, now we've got to get home. So, so, so the idea which underlies so much of this thought is that we've got to get out of exile. How we do it might be a matter of debate, but it's not just getting out of exile. It's the negation of exile. And that language is going to become extremely important. 
right? Because for him, it also includes negating the religious and institutional forms of exile in order to get back to that prophetic faith. You understand? The rabbis are a product of exile. I mean, there are no rabbis in this book, right? Moshe Rabbeinu only becomes a rabbi after the Second Temple is destroyed. He's Moshe Av Nevi'im, Moshe the father of the prophets in the Bible, right? I know that might be a little edgy for some of you. I'm not advocating it as a worldview. What I'm pointing out is that there are a number of products of this movement in subtle ways, which you're familiar with. Tell me two major movements, which are some of the hallmarks of Jewish modernity, who will see the negation of exile, be it physically, or be it in the classic inherited religious institutions that will pick this up and define Judaism in modernity. Give me one. Zionism would be the obvious, right? And the other one would be the reform movement. Interesting. I'm not saying that all the Zionists in the reform movement were Sabbateans. Don't get me wrong. Although there are those who will claim that. Um, what I am saying is that there's a deep sense that in order to move forward, we have to end exile. Well, that seems obvious, right? Except don't forget is that the Jew is a product of exile. The Jew is a product of exile. The Jew is a created response to 2,000 years of exile. That doesn't mean the Jew is not a genuine expression of Torah. Don't get me wrong. Right? The evolutionary approach would say that, that exile has drawn out something within us which otherwise never would have been. We've spoken about that. The other way to say it, though, is that that's a mistake and that in order to get back to the truth of the Bible, you have to get rid of physical exile and spiritual exile. You've got to bring... God back to earth, and along the way, you got to get rid of all those religious and cultural institutions which are a product of exile. And now you know the Jewish world. Right? And, and much of it first appears in writing in the works of none, no, none other than Abram Cardozo. Um, what? No, I think all of us have a sense that I was once what I should have been and have lost myself. No, I think this is a very important question. Right? It is a very important question. On, I can tell you as a, as a counselor, I can tell you as a teacher, right? there's a tension. Because if I have a choice when I look in the mirror. I can say I'm exactly who I'm meant to be, and then I have to accept myself for who I actually am. Not meaning I can't continue to grow, but I have to accept myself for who I am, which means I have to have some narrative that explains how all the things I've done in my life, all the places I've been, all the people I've known, the good and bad and otherwise, I have to be able to integrate them into some sense of self, which is quite a task, right? Or you know what I could say? Ah, no, I lost my way. I need to get back to who I was. That might be true as well. But in order to do that, you know what you have to do? You have to get rid of what stands between you and who you were. Right? Anybody who's read classical science writings, this should sound very familiar. Also, by the way, if you have read the synods of the early reform movement, and the fact that the language is almost identical is noteworthy, and the fact that it's rooted, at least if not linearly, meaning they didn't necessarily take it from Avram Cardozo, but the impulse arises here in the late 17th century in the mouth of a Sabbatean prophet should give us pause. Right? Um, one man's prophet is another man's madman, after all. So... 
I'd love to take a, a dramatic end to his story, but there isn't. In 1703, he settles in, in Cairo as the physician of the Pasha. Apparently, he did learn something in medical school. Um, and then he gets killed by a nephew in a like, financial dispute in like 1706. I know it's like a really very cheap ending, but you know what? Uh, whatever. I'm not even going to make bad puns about prophets and their endings. But it, it, it is critical to note there's another piece that, that really begins here at, at the cusp of the 18th century is that despite these accusations of the Masim Zarim, of the, 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 like the strange things that Shabtai Tzvi himself was doing, which he may or may not have been, as I pointed out to you, he's the boogeyman of all later rabbinic authorities. And the more they can paint Shabtai Tzvi as an evil, off-kilter character. In fact, a couple of people came up to me after I told the story and said, I don't get it. Like, I always heard Shabtai Tzvi was like this like, blood-drinking, monstrous character. What I painted for you was a slightly off-kilter, charismatic rabbi. Right? So, so even if he himself were doing, was doing these Masim Zarim, the widespread movement in his lifetime and in the generation after him were mostly normative Jews similar to the Christian movement. People may be unfamiliar with the fact that it took a good 150 to 200 years for Christianity and Judaism to actually separate, which is why you can find in the early church fathers, um, Orijan is probably the best known amongst them, polemics against going to synagogue on Saturday and coming to church on Sunday. It's like, no, you've got to choose. You can't take communion if you were in shul yesterday, right? Um, so similarly, in the beginning, the Sabbateans were legally, halakhically normative Jews. They were just underground, passing these Kabbalistic tracts, talking about the imminent redemption. And it's really from Avodon Cardozo forward that you begin to get, um, you really going to get sort of uh, a non-normative practice, law-breaking practice. It's going to take a little while. Now, so I'll tell you one more Sabbatean incident. Just the, yeah, question. Who doesn't want a Jewish doctor? No, why do you I gotta make a living. Apparently, it's not so easy as a Sabbatean prophet. No, I'm being serious. I, like, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be fun. Like, like, like he, 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 everywhere he goes, they're trying to excommunicate him and drive him out. And so it would be very easy to dismiss him as just some whack ball that for some reason I feel the need to like make significant. But the reality is, as I'm about to show you, underground. Everybody wants to dismiss someone like Avram Cardoso as an insane individual, and they keep pushing him out, pushing him out. Every community he goes either actually excommunicates him or threatens to when he leaves. But the reality is, as I'm about to show you, he is expressive of a widespread movement. You will, we will never know the extent of loyalists, because by the time the second decade of the, of the 18th century gets off, right, the level of persecution of the Sabbateans and supposed Sabbateans is so intense that it is literally worth your job and your communal life to be caught with the wrong amulet. So, so the, why would he take the job? Because he had no choice. He was going to starve. Why was he qualified? Because, you know, apparently he paid attention in school. Um, so, so I was going to give you an example of how widespread this was. Have, who's here ever heard of Yura Hasid? Not the one who wrote Sefer Hasidim. Anybody, raise your hand if you've been to the Chorva. That's an easier question. You guys have all been. Come on. You can, okay. If you haven't been to Chorva, stop now. Go to the old city. And see, it's beautiful. It's reconstructed. Of course, it's called the Chorva because, of course, it was used to be a, it was a destroyed building. Right? The Jordians destroyed it in 48. It was built by whom? The followers of Yudah Chassid in the beginning of the, no, the Ramban was the Ramban Shul. Um, right? It was by, by the followers of Rabbi Yehuda Chassid in the beginning of the 18th century. So where, who was Rabbi Yehuda Chassid? 
Well, I'll tell you a story. Um, the, in, lest you think that this uh, Sabbatean enthusiasm was a purely converso Sephardic problem, right? The outstanding Sabbatean prophet of Poland in the late 17th century was a man named Yudah Heschel Hatzoreth. He wrote Sefer Hatzoreth. Hatzoreth is a, um, is a, uh, a silversmith, um, right? And in this book, Sefer Hatzoreth is literally thousands of pages of mystical and numerological explanations of Shema Yisrael, which proclaim him as what? Mashiach ben Yosef. He's the Messiah ben Joseph because Shabbat Tzvi was the Messiah ben David. The fact that he's dead, that, that's never stopped anybody from being the Messiah, right? It was divided up into five parts, and it is seen by his followers as the Torah of the Messiah. Now, that's important because this idea of Torah to Mashiach, a Torah which makes the Torah of today look like hevel, like empty vapor. Where does that notion come from? Ooh, silence strikes the crowd. Well, you could see it in Jeremiah. That when he talks, where does the notion of a new covenant come from? In Jeremiah. Right? The idea that there's going to be a new covenant. I mean, you, there are implications of it even in the Torah itself. Right? That, that there's going to be a circumcision of the heart. Right? Jews are uncomfortable with these ideas because we associate them with Christianity. And of course, Christianity claimed to indeed offer the Torah of the Messiah, freed from its earthly bounds, as it were. The rabbis fought deeply against that because they believed the Christians were wrong. But the reality is, if you look in rabbinic literature and even in the Torah and the prophets themselves, there is a fairly subtle but clear message that the Torah we have now is not done, let's say. And that there's some expression of it, some messianic expression of it as it becomes cold during exile, which is going to just blow everything else away. Well, that's exciting, right? Right up until you find yourself in a very difficult position, which is that if you are one of the defenders of the faith, be it professional or in a lay capacity, meaning you're a rabbi or what we would today call an Orthodox Jew, you have a problem. Your whole identity is based on the Torah as you've received it. But now you're encountering the notion that redemption is about a world that you haven't seen yet. What do you do when you're presented by someone who says, listen, up until now, you've done a very good job. But if you want to take the next step, you need to put that Torah down and pick up the new one. So on one hand, the majority of Jews are going to go, yeah, we've heard this story before. Thank you very much. But if the person who's saying it to you is themselves halakhically observant, you might be a little bit more challenged. Furthermore, if the world, as you look around you, doesn't seem to be offering any hope of redemption, it might get a little bit more appealing. So this Torah to Mashiach is not going away. By the way, you'll see it again in the Baal Shem Tov, to come back to your Hasidic point. You know who else makes several very powerful references to this idea of Torah to Mashiach? Of Avram Nitzchak Cohen's cook, who, of course, is the spiritual and theological underpinning of the national religious world today. Right? And this theme doesn't go away in Jewish history. Right? The sense that the Torah as we have it is necessary but insufficient. And the question of how, whether the next step is a continuous evolution or is it what we would call a punctuated equilibrium, a breaking and rebuilding in the empty space which is provided. 
Well, continuous is comfortable, right? Because I can just take small steps, and if I get too far, I'll just step back. Well, the problem is, is that, you know, if you guys have ever read the arguments of, of uh, um, whoa, my brain, uh, evolutionary paleontologists about like, what good is half an eye? Right? Meaning there's a question in evolution whether complex structures can actually be gradually evolved or whether they don't necessitate some destruction and catastrophic destruction and then rebuilding. In the same way, it's like, well, if I really want to get to redemption, can I get there by taking baby steps? Or do I have to blow up the mosque on the Temple Mount? Says Yehuda Etzion. Right? I'm not asking you to agree with him. <laughs> but, but you can understand psychologically and also even theologically how you can come to that conclusion. Okay. So, so this sort of a bubbling challenge, as it were, is out there. But Heschel Asorif, or Yehoshua Heschel Asorif, right, um, himself is not so well known, but he joins forces late in his life um, with someone named Yudah Chassid, a rabbi Yudah Chassid from Shidlov, and he's a mochiach. It's an institution in European Jewish society. Mochiach is uh, a, you know, a, a preacher of repentance. And, and again, messianism and repentance will always go together in Jewish. This is one of, by the way, it's one of the places that you can always find a little bit of a falsehood. Remember, meaning Shabbatai Tzvi was able to gain traction because of his power of, of saying, everyone call for repentance. At the same time, I mean, if that's all it's called for, it's like, that's what we're trying to do. So what's the big deal? He wants to say he's Messiah? Okay, right? So he's a mochiach. He's got that sort of... Uh, gravitas and charismatic personality, um, and they become the moving spirits of what becomes known as the Holy Society of Rabbi Yudah Chassid. Hundreds of people who, who um, become extremely ascetic in their practices and filled with a messianic hope which centers on the land of Israel. And if you open up a good Zionist history book, which I'm sure many of you have done, you will find that the first mass awakening to physically return to the land of Israel was Rabbi Yudah Chassid. And he built the Chorva, right? Well, that's not how he was received when he got here. Between 1696 and 1700, they traveled across Europe, mostly on foot, but also, you know, by, eh, on their way to the Holy Land. There was great enthusiasm wherever they passed. They get to Jerusalem in the fall of 1700, between 500 and 1,000 desperately poor and suffering Ashkenazim, right? And when they get there, they were received by the rabbis and mostly Sephardic community of Jerusalem as a bunch of Sabbatean heretics which apparently, there's decent evidence, is what they were. Yeah, that, that, that this first wave of return, which through the lens of Zionist historiography is seen as a very important precursor to Zionism, right? Um, in the eyes of those people around them, was actually a peak of Sabbatean activity. Now, Rabbi Yudah Hasid dies almost upon arrival, and the movement dissolves for reasons which really are not so critical to us. Um, but this was the end, really, in many ways, of this moderate Sabbatean movement, which could still be called normative. Meaning, okay, they were super enthusiastic. But at the end of the day, what did their enthusiasm cause them to do? Be really religious and move to Israel. <laughs> right? Okay, so like, my mom might not be happy, but the rabbis are. Right? So, um, the, but from here on out, uh, we're going to see waves of persecution begin as people start to get really n nervous with the end that the null, with this idea that the nullification of the Torah is its actual fulfillment is going to gain ground, um, and every sort of charismatic teacher of Kabbalah, at one point or another, is now going to be subjected to the accusation that.
that they are really a Sabbatean. But probably the best case I can give you, um, just to like give you an example, and then I'll spend the last few minutes taking questions and setting the stage for Spinoza. Um, best case I can give you, um, of course, is uh, Rav Moshe Chaim Luzato, the Ramchal, right? Born in Padua in, in 1707, right? The Ramchal, as I've told you before, is the litmus test for greatness in Jewish literature, which I told you is, is what's the test? That if your works were banned in your lifetime and then they're published by Feldheim in the 20th century, <laughs> then, then you have stood the test of greatness in Jewish literature. And, and the Ramchal, indeed, in, in his lifetime, um, he's considered a master of, of, of Bible, Midrash, you know, the Gemara, Halacha, everything. And, of course, he also has an extensive knowledge of Western languages and literature. He wrote plays in Italian, as we spoke about once upon a time. That's the tradition of the Italian rabbinate. Um, but, unfortunately, perhaps for him, in 1727, so a good 20-plus years after Rabbi Yudha Chassid and his Hasidim reached the Holy Land, he claims that a Magid appears to him, not only appears to him and reveals secrets, not only reveals secrets, but a point actually dictated entire books. People may be less familiar with that. Certain of the Ramchal's Kabbalistic works, he says, were dictated to him by this angelic voice. Um, so that is a little uncomfortable in a world in which the Magid has now become associated with Sabbatean prophets. Right? He, one of his um, disciples, Yekutiel of Vilna, writes a really excited description of what's going on there in Padua to one of the rabbis of Vienna, Mordecai Yafi. But that letter happens to fall into the hands of Rabbi Mor uh, Moshe Chagiz, right? who at this point, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz has taken up, there's always somebody who takes up the mantle of, uh, of Yaakov Kaspoltas as the chief persecutor of Sabbateans. And this is an important institution which is going on right now. The persecutor of Sabbateans. That is his sort of the raison d'etre. That's why he is around. Now, his father had been one of the original rabbis of Jerusalem who rejected Shabbat back in 1665, just to give you his yichas, as they say, right? He's been fighting battles back in Amsterdam. If you're familiar with the Chacham Tzvi, who was one of the great Ashkenazi leaders of Amsterdam, he and the Chacham Tzvi had banded together at the beginning of the 18th century against uh, a certain Sabbatean named Nehemiah Hayun, Right? Now, that's a great example that Nehemiah Hayun was accepted by the Portuguese-Spanish community in Amsterdam. It was the Ashkenazim who fought him. In the end of the day, Chacham Tzvi and Moshe Chagiz managed to gather enough evidence that the Portuguese came over to their side and drove him out. But you know who else left town? The Chacham Tzvi and Moshe Chagiz. Because the split that was created between the Portuguese and the Ashkenazi community was only healed by kicking out the Chacham Tzvi. Um, so... He's been, so, so Rabbi Moshe is, is going to be also deeply involved in, we'll, we'll get to later, in some of the battles against Sabbateism in Eastern Europe in the 20s and 30s, which, sorry, 1720s and 30s, which are going to directly impact the rise of Hasidut. Uh, we'll tell that story at another time. But here in 1730, just to jump way forward in time to give you the full picture, Rabbi Chagiz sends a copy of this letter describing the Ramchal's Kabbalistic activity to the rabbis of Venice. He calls for an investigation of this sort of, he's got a messianically oriented study group, which was a very big phenomenon since the time of Rizal, this idea that, that, that revelation happens in a Haraya Kedisha, it's, it's written into the Zohar, that there's a, 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 a sort of a holy companionship, which is the sort of sinquan non of, of this level of revelation, right? I, truth is, I have a bunch of details here. I'm not going to drive you through them all. It, 
it seems that it, he gets away with it. In the end of the day, the Ramchal manages to clear his name basically by handing over his works to his teacher. He gets all of his written works. Because remember, this is not the information age. He gives over the manuscripts of everything he's written down to his teacher. That's it. We could have lost these things. In fact, the understanding is that there are many of them which never saw the light. Um, a, and his teacher actually writes back to him, what in the end of the day is the difference between you and Nathan of Gaza? Only that he related all his ideas to Shabtai Tzvi, and you do not. Meaning, meaning the Ramchal is edgy. And most of us, if you've tried to read sort of like his, his less well-known works, good luck with understanding them. I mean, and this is part of the problem, is at a certain point of Kabbalistic imagery, you could say up is down, left is right, black is white, and I wouldn't know the difference. And so on one hand, that's very dangerous, because it means it's a gateway for heresy. But you know what else it is? The gateway for persecution. Because if I am making my reputation as a persecutor of Sabbateans to bring down someone like the Ramchal is a really big feather in my cap. So we're going to see that that problem is not going to go away as we go forward in, in European Jewish history. And that's perhaps the note in which to pause and take questions. And what I'll end with, I'm not going to introduce Spinoza right now, what I'll end with is an important review of, of, of the deep blows that rabbinic authority has taken right now, which is actually probably the best introduction we could give to Spinoza's story, truth be told. So questions or comments on this second half of the Sabbatean story before we review the, uh, the crumbling nature of rabbinic authority. How did the Chorva get built if he died in, in, right upon arrival? Truth is, I don't know the story of the building. I've, I've heard before that it's like a, quite a story, but I don't, I don't know it. What? Yeah. Yeah, go take a tour. Question. Well, 1730, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz gets his hands on this letter describing the Ramchal's activities. He hands it over to a group of rabbis in Venice. They start an investigation, which goes on for another 10 years or so. In the end of the day, the Ramchal seems to squeak through, meaning everybody knows he's, he's a mystic Kabbalist who's hearing voices. Most people don't actually understand the depth of what he's writing. They're suspicious of him because he's hearing, remember, Magid, Magid, Magid. He has a voice that's talking to him. Um, and they come to a compromise. He hands over the goods, so to speak, all his documents to his rabbi. The Ramchal, of course, moves to the land of Israel, which today makes him from, but then doesn't sort of like uh, doesn't speak well of his loyalties, uh, and, and dies at a very young age, age 39, might have actually been 40 at that point, in the plague in Akko. So uh, burned is an exaggeration. They were sequestered <laughs> until until they were reprinted by Feldman. <laughs> Rav Moshe Chaim Luzato, the Ramchal. Highly worthwhile works, by the way. Dafut Tzmunot in particular is, is it got to be read. Yeah? I don't know if the Shadal is related. He's another Zato, but I don't know if the Shadal is related. Um, other questions or comments, so we're going to talk about the end of the rabbinic, rabbinic era. No? Yes? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so so I, I would say, depending on what crowd I'm with, one of my least popular or most popular perspectives is I really believe that we live at the tail end of the end of the rabbinic era. Right? If you look in the Bible, the Bible has a prophetic era. We could argue about when it begins. It begins with Adam, begins with Abraham, begins with Moses. I don't really care for right now when it begins. It's a discussion, but it clearly ends around about the second, beginning of the Second Temple. We could parse out another 50 or 100 years exactly when. Look it up. But what replaces it 
is the rabbinic era. Now, it's important to note that, of course, when the prophetic era ends, prophecy doesn't exactly go away. To this very day, if you indulge in traditional Jewish prayer, then you say the word Baruch Hatah Hashem on a regular basis. You know what that middle word is? It's a striving for prophecy. It's an addressing of God in the second person, which in Hebrew, of course, is nochach. Right? The, the direct address of God is the core element of the prophetic tradition, which is why you will see well after prophets cease to be in the Book of Prophets, whether it's the mystics, whether it's the rabbis, whether it's the Kabbalists, whether it's the Hasidim, there's alive and well this sense that prophecy maintains its role as part of the Jewish tradition. What it lacks is its role as the authoritative organizing principle. That's replaced by the rabbis. Right? Their true power is wisdom. And their organizing principle is education. Right? That's what they're aiming to do. Well, you know, wisdom is a very useful tool, which is not going to go away. But the institution that embodies it, the rabbis, comes under unprecedented assault with, with modernity. And at this point, in the information age, in many ways, rabbis have lost their authority. That doesn't mean there aren't communities that are loyal to the rabbis. It doesn't mean there aren't good rabbis that are doing important work. It's not, that's not my point. As the central organizing principle of Jewish life, rabbinic authority is over. What? As the central, depends upon amongst whom? Yeah, but that itself is proof. Right? If you didn't believe in the prophets, you know what you were? An idolater. If you don't believe in the rabbis, you know what you are today? Liberal. <laughs> right? So, so, so it, I'm not against my point. I, hey, I'm a rabbi. Don't get me wrong, right? Um, the, 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 uh, it happened by accident. But, um, but, but I want to understand now, as we're going into modernity, like what, what happened? What, what exactly was this sort of full-scale assault on rabbinic authority? So first of all, we've already named a couple of them. This uncoupling of knowledge from tradition, which is the hallmark of modernity, will affect the rabbinic class as much as it affects the, the, the church. Right? That, that, that um, a much of rabbinic authority depended upon a mastery of knowledge, right? because there's an elite. So the printing press and the spread of knowledge and communication will, will undermine that. To the extent that today, when I get a question in Kashrut or something else, you know how often when someone asks me a question, they've already checked Google? <laughs> right. right? You know, but what's interesting, by the way, and this proves to you that just like prophecy maintains its value, wisdom maintains its value. Because you know what the problem with Google is? It's information without wisdom. Unless you happen to trust their algorithm to give you the most authoritative answer, you're just, you have a deluge of information. And so therefore, what they're really turning to me is saying, I just saw six different answers. Which one should I do? That's a very different question, right? So anyway, but this, the uncoupling of knowledge and tradition is more than just the loss of their elite status. It's, the problem also is, what are the cultural tradition, what are the standards by which we determine? Remember, a posek, a halakhic decisor, is not someone who tells you what you can and can't do. That's a knowledgeable Jew. That's a knowledgeable Jew. A posek's role is to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Right? That's why oftentimes poseks will say something is, is sewer, even though you can find sources to say that it's permitted. And they're saying, they'll tell you, yeah, I know that. But I'm not telling you just the abstract. I'm telling you what should be done here. Now, that's an act of wisdom. So the uncoupling of knowledge from tradition undermines that capacity. Because why? Because in today's world, the people with the greatest mastery of Torah, almost universally, are detached from the world. And the people most deeply engaged in the world as it is today lack any depth of knowledge of Torah. 
That's a problem and was never that way historically. Right? And it's not that way even now universally. There are personalities who span that. But it, that problem is, I, I don't know that it can be bridged at this point. That's one, this uncoupling of knowledge from tradition. Number two, right, just flat out mobility. Right? The, the role that rabbis play in, in social organization has to do with a sense of place. Custom is an expression of a sense of place. Right? Authority, as we're going to get to when we get into the story of Spinoza, the ultimate sword wielded by the rabbinic class for maintaining their authority is what? Excommunication in its various gradations, which means nothing, well not nothing, means very little when you can pick up and move to another town. And today in Jerusalem, it's like you see these posters, so-and-so has been excommunicated. Like, who is this rabbi and who is so-and-so? I don't even know, right? Like that, that social fabric doesn't exist any longer. Furthermore, even well before modernity, we, all had, we already had this rise of a multi-synagogue community. As I told you, Amsterdam has a Spanish-Portuguese community. It has a Polish community. It's going to have a German community. right? Like, like, and so therefore, the authority, what happens when those rabbis start to argue with each other? Right, you know, old joke about yeah, the two the two shuls and they say so. But you you know how that undermines authority because as soon as your rabbi, right, um, starts acting just like your neighbors in in their quest for power, then it's it's you know, it's over, it's over. And this is what I try to tell my colleagues is that is that you need to go back to the core task of being an educator and let go of the need to be an authority figure. And then you might actually be able to wield wisdom again and not just try to have power. So the, that's called authority. When you give someone power, that's called authority. When I take it, it's called power. And, that's a, and, a, and, and there's a very delicate balance there, because where does power come from? Some of it can come from the fact that you know, I, as a rabbi, <clears throat> well, I can't actually because I'm not certified by the rabbinate, but imagine I was. I can perform certain life ceremonies, and someone else cannot. Or for instance, if I perform those life ceremonies, now under the law, what happens to me? I can get arrested, right? So like, they, whereas, like, what if my students want me to marry them? Right? That's authority. They want me to marry them. Why? Because well, for whatever reason, they respect me or they want that. So that's a longer discussion. But, but here, uncoupling of knowledge from tradition, just flat out mobility and the communication that goes with it and the broadening of horizons. That was the other characteristic, by the way, of modernity we spoke about. It's not just uncoupling knowledge from tradition. It's broadening the horizons of experience literally in the age of great exploration, and then in the sort of interaction that communication brings. Um, this rise of secular authority, or it, they say non-lay authority, it's a better word, within the Jews, is that the parnasim, right? the machers in English, right? Um, the, the, the parnasim, the, the people, the financial power, be it the um, port Jews of the Sephardic diaspora, who, because of their commercial independence, are able to wield real power and, and will consistently subvert the rabbis, as we'll speak about when we get to the Spinoza story, or the court Jews of the European Ashkenazi experience, who by sort of joining into the European court, rising and getting the power to protect their compatriots, they're also exposed to the European norms of behavior. Those are some of the beginnings of the rise of secular Jewish power. Right? Today, I won't ask if anybody's ever sat on their synagogue board, but people are probably familiar with how little power the rabbi actually has in the way in which most synagogue communities are run. And, and most often, that's written into their contract. That will begin in the 17th century, when the Parnassim start making these takanot, these community um, 
constitutions, if you will, that, that make very clear who's in charge, where and the, where the rabbi can and cannot voice his opinion. So that rise of the lay authority is a big piece. And last but certainly not least, the Sabbatean explosion. Because, you know, once bitten, twice shy. There were a lot of rabbis who got really enthusiastic about the Messiah. Of course they did. Because they're the ones holding the tradition that, let it be soon, let it be now. There's more to the story than meets the eye. But people are not so forgiving when authority shows itself to be foolish. Furthermore, perhaps if authority had owned up and said it was mistaken and then tried to deal with the underlying social and religious issues that gave such power to the Sabbatean revolt, which I would call, it might have saved itself. But instead, what did it do? It turned around and began a witch hunt. No, it wasn't me. I was never in favor of that guy. But I've seen what you wrote. Right? And that's what we're going to see in European history. I've seen what you wrote. Right? We saw those amulets you gave out yesterday. I think you're a Sabbatean. And if, that, if the fact happens to be that by accusing you of being a Sabbatean, I can get your job, so that's all the good, isn't it? Right? And we're going to see that this, this power struggle, classic witch hunt, will unfold sort of in very quiet ways, some less quiet, uh, throughout European history. These are all elements that are weakening the structure of the rabbinic class, which in many ways will incapacitate it in its attempts to engage the real challenges that modernity poses. So we're going to stop there, and we will pick up, I'm not sure where, but somewhere worthwhile, next week. This was a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please contact jamie at pardes.org.